Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little hoarse. Um, I will probably explain it in the canine update in the G file this week, but I was yelling vociferously at the dingo last night, and I think that's how I lost my voice, but we can talk about that more later. Uh, so you're just gonna have to put up with me sounding like a sort of transgender Lauren Bacall. Um, I'm sort of breaking the space-time continuum thing here uh, because I'm now recording this after the conversation you're about to hear and after the intro that you're about to hear. Um, but I wanted to apologize. Some listeners get really mad when we go long on this thing and other people really like it. My own view is that if you're still listening after 45 minutes, you probably want the conversation to keep going. Uh, but as I say in the intro you're about to hear, when I talk to my friend David Bonson, uh, the conversation goes a lot of different places and this one was no exception. And so if sort of like, you know, the weather in the Bahamas, wait five minutes and you'll get something different. Uh, if, if you're interested in coronavirus and the economy, great. You'll love it from the beginning. If you're more interested in the future of conservatism and all that stuff, stick around to the end. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, uh, today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Um, and our new friends at drinkhydrant.com. I'll tell you more about both of them in a little bit, um, but I want to get j- jump right into it. We have, this is your third time? Third time. Third time, but first time in the studio? Yeah. Yeah, very exciting. Um, friend of the podcast, friend of mine, um, friend of the dispatch, friend of National Review, friend of all good things, friend of capitalism, uh, David Bonson. He's the head of the ironically titled Bonson Group, which is sort of like that old joke about what were the odds of Lou Gehrig coming down with Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and he's the host of Dividend Cafe, a podcast about filthy lucre and whatnot. And um, he is uh, a runaway front runner for the John Podoritz Prize in ill-timed political books. Uh, of course, it's named after John Podoritz because he wrote a book about Hillary Clinton called Can She Be Stopped? which came out right as she was being stopped. Um, and uh, so his book was Elizabeth Warren, How Her Presidency Would Destroy the Middle Class and the American Dream. And it's a little, un- I mean, I'm glad that Elizabeth Warren is out, uh, but it's too bad because I blurbed the book. It's a good book. It's got a lot of stuff that probably would apply to any Democratic presidency, but hers more than most. And the good news for you for the next edition is that she's been under consideration for treasury secretary uh, in the Biden imagine? administration. I'd almost rather her be president. <laughs> <laughs> David Bonson, welcome. Good to be with you, Jonah. And and I did not, you know, it's funny, I didn't think of Pedoritz's book. I used his examples in my own introduction, forecasting the fact that my book would end up being poorly timed. Hugh Hewitt's Mormon in the White House. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, I, Bernie's not a Mormon, is he? Or Biden? no? Okay. No. So yeah, the, uh, but then David Bossie did that movie on Hillary. Right. And I, and I donated a bunch of money to it back in the day, and my point of it was, oh, this wasn't poorly timed because look what ended up happening out of that movie, uh-huh. the Citizens United Supreme Court case. So my point was, something will come out of my book no matter what happens. But actually, if I didn't an know, appearance on the Remnant podcast, that, seems that's to be the, it. that's the biggest uh-huh. issue. Yeah, actually, the correlation. Uh, between the announcement of my book coming out and and then all the way through uh, her, you know, actually leaving the campaign, if one overlap these charts, they definitely get the impression that I took down her candidacy. I would go with that. Yeah, uh-huh. I've, I've tried my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
uh, we'll get to Elizabeth Warren. We'll get to the problems with uh, uh, for listeners who haven't heard us talk before. Um, the cold, the the conversational cul-de-sacs are kind of uh, the feature, not the bug, of our conversations. So we'll cover a lot of ground. But um, let's start with like your day job, right? Um, you're often on the money shows and all that kind of stuff, talking about filthy lucre and whatnot. Um, what do you make of the? Mar- we're recording this on Tuesday. The big, the big dip was on Monday. It was about two thousand points. Um, the trading was stopped. What six, seven minutes into the start of the day, and it looks like we're going to get a correction um, as we speak, uh, coming back up a bit. But who knows where the day is going to end? We may the living may envy the dead by the end of the day, or the hour, or the hour. So. Uh, what do you make of the general global economy, the where the markets are going, and should we all but just buy gold and hide? Well, there's there's uh, kind of different answers to economy and market. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the biggest misperceptions a lot of investors will have is that the markets and the overall economy directly correlate each other. Markets are classic leading indicators, and a whole lot of other things people look to are classic lagging indicators. And they can make big mistakes out of not understanding that. Uh, we don't know. I mean, the markets are always going to trade worst off of uncertainty. And and my view of it is on the fundamentals that we know now, uh, as a market event, you would, coronavirus would not even be mentioned. It would not even be on the radar. But uh, there is a whole lot of hysteria out there. And then it isn't about what we know now. It's about what could end up being. So if, I, if we were to just sort of pull a 40-year market veteran out of the Hall of Fame and say we've had 20 deaths from a mysterious uh, novel strain of uh, a flu-like epidemic, uh, 20 deaths in America and, uh, you know, four or 500 diagnoses, uh, they would look at you like you had three heads. Be, it would be so bizarre. Globally, the situation is much worse, and then it's all these knock-on effects. Um, so as far as where the economy is going, it would be impossible to fully speculate. All we know is it's going to go lower. I mean, Q2 is certainly going to have an impact. The question right now, that's baked in. It's more than baked in. I mean, you're talking about 5,000 points down on the Dow from the high, and globally, we're now up to about $17 trillion of market cap reduced. I mean, you could throw Japan away like four times, and that – and uh, is what are we globally two thousand deaths? No, it's higher than that. It's higher now. Yeah, I think so. But it's but it's still on a relative basis. It's a number that's somewhat underwhelming as macroeconomists sure. talk, not as human beings talk. And I think because I make a difference between macroeconomists and human beings, I think that um, the spending, if it hits a consumer in America. Uh, in a two-quarter, three-quarter sense, then we go to a recession. Probably a shallow one, but a recession. Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden you start hearing more and more cures, more and more remissions, more and more uh, just kind of positivity around the direction of the whole thing, um, there, there are more factories going back online in China now, things like that. If it ends up being a kind of one-and-done quarterly event, then we, it probably is significantly overblown. But my guess is it'll be somewhere in between. Right. But so when you talk about the deaths and all these kinds of things, you're just talking as if the psychology of the public weren't a factor, right? Because we're not talking about, right. And But the psychology of the public really is. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
So the psychology of the public is prone. It's it's swung so much to right now the other way. South by Southwest being canceled with no diagnosis in Austin whatsoever. That's an extraordinary event. American Delta canceling uh, flights, all that type of stuff, very expected. It's a big deal. That's the psychology aspect. However, what I'm saying is that if all of a sudden you start getting a sort of psychology the other way, that in fact there just doesn't seem to be growing widespread epidemic, it could very well flip the other way. Um, but to the extent that no one knows exactly how that will go. And, and I also think that more and more information is bullish, not bearish, because the mortality uh, under 50 is basically zero. Mm. 50 to 70 is it's, it's there. It's very high over 80. And, you know, mortality rates are very high over 80 without coronavirus, too, because of being 80. Being 80. Yeah. And so I don't. But again, I'm with you. I think it's the psychology. That's the issue that matters here. I don't think that, you know, they're going to probably try to announce some stimulus bill today. I'm very bearish on that. Mm. Payroll tax cut around this, targeted relief for airlines, this and that. Anything the Fed could possibly do, a non-event. It can have a financial market psychology effect, but it can't have a real substantive economic effect. So if we're talking about weakness in the economy... There's just going to be a hit, and it will depend on how long it lasts to see how it permeates. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm – I defer to you entirely on how markets work. Um, I'm a buy and hold guy, and I bought some today. I'm going to hold it until I at least retire. So, um, And hopefully you're going to hold it after you retire because you're going to need the dividends from what you bought to live while you retire. That's right. Um, um, but – on the sort of the place where I think we're both at best uh, posers and amateurs on the issue of the epidemiology, <laughs> um, I, I think it's I think the psychology gets worse before it gets better, and that uh, this lack of testing in the United States is a political problem in the sense that there's been so little of it, which means that you're going to get just as a function of the math. When you start doing a lot of testing, you're going to get a lot of cases. You're going to have a. It's going to seem like there's a huge spike in cases, when really what it is is a huge spike in identifying the cases that already existed, and that's going to freak people out who are innumerate in all sorts of ways. Um, and uh, and then there's the added problem that Trump is not a good messenger on these things, even though his critics are being at times unfair to him. Yeah. Uh, and if you actually, I mean, have you seen this this polling that shows that uh, reaction to whether coronavirus is a problem or not breaks down on partisan lines? I have, but you know what's interesting? And I, I guess we're already going to go on our first tangent. I can't figure out if it's the right or the left that is, is so, so the idea would be that it's the right saying coronavirus is no big deal and it's the left saying it's a big deal. Right. Um, and yet there is the Bannon Carlson wing, which I guess for our purposes, we still have to call the right, even though you sure. and I have our own take on that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, they're far outside of where the left is on how this will work. Cause they have kind of their own uh, isolation, anti-China anti -China, and also just a greater, um, not even specific to China, just greater isolationist uh, agenda from right. And so I also think politically Bannon has a play that that is kind of like him 
that there could be this sort of heroic play, like make COVID huge now so that if it's not huge in August, you're the savior at the uh-huh. moment. And and he kind of thinks that way. And, uh, you know, all that to say, you're that's not surprising that it breaks down. Politi- Tell me something that doesn't break down. No, politi- that's where, where I was going with that is that if, look, I mean, epidemiolo- epidemiologically, yeah. I don't think this is as big a deal as some people are making it out to be, or at least we don't know that it's as big a deal as they're making it out to be in the United States. It clearly is in Italy. Um, it clearly was in China, and it sounds like they got a handle on it, but one of the ways they got a handle on it was literally like welding people into their apartments if they got caught, if they were believed to be infected so they couldn't get out. They did a sort of draconian stuff that we're not going to be able to do here. And... Um, if it starts to actually reach, not terrifying, but just like it's it runs its natural course as a pandemic in the United States, um, you have the real possibility that a big, you know, the, the people it's going to kill disproportionately are the heart of Donald Trump's base. <laughs> it's old pe- people. It's old people, yeah. and that ha- that could have a bad psychological effect. I mean, I hate being ghoulish about all sure. this, but... It, it's, again, as long as we're saying if, and it could do this, could do that, I'm with you, because yeah. all of those things are on the table. They're all possibilities. However, right, what we see right now is interesting in that the exposures, you mentioned Italy, 56 million people, and it's a couple thousand... Uh, I mean, it's it's there, there's a, a exposure enough that they're locking down the whole country. Yeah, with China, it was ground zero. It was uh, food and meat infested that had then transmitted all over a community. So that shutdown was just absolutely uh, have to. Within the U.S.'s exposure, there's the the fear and the the scare of these community exposures that are unknown. It was a senior center nursing home, literally in Washington. And then they're including in the data the cruise ship passengers mm-hmm. who were not in the states, and they got they're exposed to people directly from Asia. So uh, it is still right now statistically practically an outlier in the U.S. So I'm I think it will change. The question I don't know the answer to is how much that's already priced in. Mm-hmm. You could have a situation where you get two thousand new diagnoses in America, and markets like that. The economic response is positive because it's less than the fear sure. factor. Um, what, what I, the, all, the other issue too, is some of these various therapeutic treatments that are in testing, uh, we're, we're holders of a stock called Gilead Sciences that are the makers of this, uh, uh, therapeutic, not a vaccine. It's a treatment. Uh, the FDA greenlighted, uh, their acceleration to phase three testing. They've run 1000 tests in China, 400 at one dosage, 600 another results come back first week of April. We're hearing 96% success rate and that they are already repurposing manufacturing, getting rid of other products to prepare for what they believe is imminent approval. And that could be a game changer. Sure. So, again, I don't know. I think that right now the psychology, though, let's say the epidemic it could be a 10 mm-hmm. and right now it's a 1 or 2. And I think right now the psychology is already at a six. Yeah, no, it's probably fair. And so it'd have to be a seven or eight to get worse in that sense. I mean, all these things are hard to totally measure. But um, there is a significant amount of irrationality in the psychology. And not just that people can't get sick and people can't get scared. And I don't think it's just the mortality issue either. It it is, um, first of all, one thing I'm struck by is how little people apparently realize 
their exposures every day before there was ever such thing as coronavirus. I think that you're probably going to end up with a far uh, cleaner hands society Mm -hmm. after all this, and uh, that may be a good thing. But uh, it's not really helpful to say I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm not going to lie. I don't know where it's going to go, and nor does anyone else who's saying they do either. Um, I can see the airlines bouncing back pretty quickly, right? I can see... um, Can you see Trump giving them a bunch of money? I can see Trump giving them a bunch of money. Um, I could see the case for... Well, I can see most every... uh, There's going to be an enormous... It seems to me there's going to be an enormous amount of pent-up demand, right? If everyone's staying home, not going out, and they cancel their vacation, and they cancel their convention, and they cancel their conference, and then boom, you get the all-clear... A lot of people are like, let's go, right? Um, uh, I am not sure that the cruise industry is ever going to fully recover from this. I'll say this because I'm with you 100% on everything you just said. Other than ever, I will just say the cruise industry will be the last to recover and will recover with the least magnitude. But there were those incidents of... Let's put it this way. I'm never going on a cruise again. <laughs> um, I've taken my, my kids on six Disney cruises. And, um, just, yeah, I think the idea – it's not, by the way, about getting sick or it's disgusting. Or, I mean, like, especially Disney. Like, those are some of the most sanitized, sure. clean, well-run. It's just the idea of being forced in a quarantine. Like, I really don't even like being in the studio right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, being forced on a cruise ship for two or three weeks is just horrifying. Um, and that's when everything's going fine on a cruise yeah. ship. <laughs> Yeah, so I agree with you, but but the pent up demand is interesting argument. There, like a thing like uh, Shanghai Disney being closed. Okay, well the people that had a February trip planned, like they can't, that's done. It's not coming back. Yeah. Factory orders for products, those are that's pent. Up. Right. It will end up coming back. So I wouldn't make a prediction right now. But if somebody put a gun to my head and said you had to predict, I would not go with the ridiculous idea that Q two will barely feel this. But right now, anyways, I would not predict that it goes into recession, two consecutive quarters sure. of declining GDP. What I would predict is that you have a hit in Q2 and a significant rebound Q3 uh, from that pent-up demand you're talking about, which, if that timeline worked out, actually could be helpful to the president. For, mm-hmm. uh, but who knows? Yeah, we'll get to that in two seconds. But just one last thing. Um, if you were going around the dial like I was yesterday um, – it was interesting to see how much there was a bit of a break. Like the Fox political uh, economic pundit types seemed to be emphasizing this. It was more in reaction to the oil uh, announcement from Saudi Arabia, and the sort of MSNBC or CNBC types were saying this was mostly a uh, mostly a Corona thing. Although the oil thing factored into it. How do you break down the psychology of the market drop yet on Monday? Um, I don't. I guess we can't call it Black Monday, but you know, uh, uh, Monday, the oil announcement for you know for listeners who don't know, which would be strange, Saudi Arabia just wildly cut their boosted, um, boosted their product. Well, cut their price. Sort of boosted production to yeah, and um, it's it's like a supply and demand yield curve go. or something. Right? Um, so anyway, what do you think? How you know, much? You that know what's interesting? In? I um. I'm not, this is a theory. I, I'll tell you. The, it, it's just kind of weird that the Fox folks are right. But uh, there's no question yesterday's was far more oil-driven than corona. For one thing, there was no new news on the corona thing. Now, there was no better news. There was no kind of improvement 
on the margins, there were certain little pockets of bad announcements and this guy's getting tested and more outbreak in Italy or something like that, but nothing significant. And uh, I've already had the 4,000 points and get another 2,000 on top, um, where the only catalyst was a 30% drop in oil. Um, there's no, and again, the, the oil price, all the oil stocks led the market down. There was nothing that wasn't down. 11 stocks out of 500 in the S&P were positive. It's pretty significant breadth and depth. But the energy stuff was down exponentially more than everything else. So I do think that's probably true of yesterday. I don't think it's true of the last three weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a general rule, there was a big debate. I think actually uh, Trump was feeding some of it. Well, a couple weeks ago when you had the four consecutive big down days and he was saying it was more Bernie. Yeah. And then when and then it all of a sudden got a little prima facie acceptability the day after uh, Super Tuesday and they were calling it the Biden rally. Mm -hmm. And then it hit me because every now and then I get so critical of president. I know you do, too. And I forget how bad the other side is at the same thing. Yeah. You had the the. CNBC, CNNs and, and MSNBCs calling it the Biden rally. Well, so it wasn't the Bernie drop, but it was the Biden <laughs> rally. Everyone wants to have it both ways. One thing I've known 20 plus years in the markets, you cannot ever scientifically identify exactly what's moving. People do not understand how little the market needs to have a reason to do what it's going to do. In this, in this environment, when you have such high volatility, there are catalysts. And and what Russia and Saudi did Sunday night, uh, well, it was really a decision made Friday that didn't leak until Sunday. Mar oil prices dropped uh, on Friday at news at OPEC Plus, which is basically OPEC plus Russia. So there's just a really neat fraternity of, of nations had decided that there would not be a deal around curtailing production. What came out was that the in the course of the, the talks breaking down, Russia, that Saudi said, not only if you don't agree to cartel production, then we're going to flood the world oil markets. And Russia said, fine, we're going to break American shale. And they kind of escalated both the language vocabulary, but also the policy intent. Um, there, this just brings up the uncertainty thing again. I personally am uncertain as to what Putin's really doing. Mm -hmm. What I don't think he's doing is trying to break American shale. You don't think he's trying to do that? Well, they can't break American shale, Jonah. Who's smarter than Putin? Yeah, but that's, there's a distinction there, right? It's Maybe he can't succeed, but you think that means he's not trying because he's I, so smart? I, I do. I think that um, 2015 was a really sincere, really noble really um, uh, interesting endeavor to break shale from Saudi, mm -hmm. from OPEC. And it failed so uh, calamitously for them that it ran up their budget deficits to levels they had never seen before. It created a whole lot of political economic angst. It's totally reprogrammed Saudi intentions for their society, for the next generation. And uh, at the end of it, they it didn't lay a dent on, on shale. If um, there are people of far less both global intelligence in terms of inf access to information and also intelligence, meaning IQ, that, that know uh, that the capital market structure in America can – look, they can kill weak producers. Mm -hmm. They can kill – I mean when you get people who are leveraged 30 to 1, it doesn't take much to push them over. 
But all that does is strengthen Exxon and Chevron. They'll pick up weak assets. So yeah, your C plus credits, your junk bond holders in and shale, they could go down quite easily. Where do they go? They just simply fall into stronger hands that have mm-hmm. balance sheets to write it out tremendously. They don't just end up picking up the pieces. They like it. They they come out of it stronger. Mm-hmm. And to the extent they just have to shut the rigs down for a little while, they weren't really prepared to do that in 2015. They did it. They're super prepared to do it now. They'd have no profits. It could hurt banks. It could hurt bondholders. But it's very targeted. It can't systemically break that sector. And there's more private equity capital that came into the space and can come in the space. You look at the Blackstones, KKRs, Carlisles. Now you're talking about other people that share Putin's level of IQ. Uh, These are not Fox commentator Mm -hmm. people, right? Um, my, both of us are Fox <laughs> What does that say? No, I, what I'm getting at is that I just believe Putin has another geopolitical angle here that, than trying to mess with junk bond credits in Oklahoma. Um, so what do you think that is? Um, Iran. He's not helping Iran here. No, uh, hurting uh, Saudi hurting Iran. Remember, Saudi is the one who's probably going to have to blink first. Um, they brought Aramco uh, public. They only sold 5% of it to public. But you're talking about the largest publicly traded company in the world is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. And a nearly $2 trillion valuation when it went out to public markets last year. Uh, I, I think that Russia is willing to withstand more pain, but the pain is deeper in Russia. They just seem to be a little more... Is it sadist or masochist? I always get that <laughs> pain tolerant. <laughs> I have pain tolerant about it, and and uh, my suspicion would be that uh, one of them will blink and the other one will blink along, and they'll both do some face saving type thing. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe similar to what Trump and China did with yeah. each other to some degree. No one talks about it how they kind of had to face save. They talk about like they made a deal, but a lot of that deal was reeling back in some of the excessive rhetoric. But who knows? I mean, maybe this thing lasts for for extended period. But all I know is shale producers can shut down at thirty dollars an oil at thirty dollars a barrel. Saudi and Russia can't, and Russia needs sixty. Saudi wants eighty. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're not even close to funding the running their countries. These are not diversified economies. Well, Energy is down to four percent of the S and P five hundred, and even as national economic output goes. Um, plus, tr- by the way, Trump. Speaking of tariffs, Trump could put a tariff on imports of oil mm-hmm. and even sell it as a nationalistic thing. Yeah, there, there is, there's just plenty of ways that shale comes out of this thing unscathed, not in the next two weeks, mm-hmm. but in the next two years. Yeah. So, um, if I hear you right, what you're saying is is that that Putin's got smarter people looking at this than Saudi Arabia does. And if that's the case, that just proves the importance of ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. Specifically, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. 
And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. That's D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so let's 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 switch I gears. Think that, I think that to, to close out this point, I, you and I have on the podcast and of course privately talked a lot about the kind of silliness of this theory that's existed out there since 2015 of Trump as this what is what do you say the multi fourth dimensional four dimensional chess, chess player. player yeah. I don't think it's fair to give that label to Saudi autocrats either. Mm-hmm. The idea that they're all out there with some master plan. Here's how we take down shale. Here's how we short the bonds and do this. I think they're just going day by day as well. I know Trump does it. I think they're doing it. Yeah, although I will, in terms of the chess playing thing, MBS, while everybody's paying attention to coronavirus and all this other stuff, he quietly had like a half dozen competitor relatives arrested on treason and sort of shuffled away, which nobody is talking about. I mean- you almost expect them, you know, let's take out a couple more Washington Post columnists, too, while we're at it, because no one's paying attention to what we're doing. But. Yeah, well, the macro guys that I like and follow, some of which are left, center-left, some of mm-hmm. which are center-right, but I read this stuff religiously. One of the things they're pointing out that's different, even with some of the China tensions in 15, 16 in currency markets, certainly with the financial crisis where China was and, and our relationship with Saudi Arabia throughout the whole period, um, no one right now has a spirit of cooperation. Mm-hmm. There was an unbelievable coordination, all in self-interest. It wasn't like it was kumbaya. But from China to Saudi to Russia to U.S., you have four pretty independently-minded bodies right now that don't have a whole lot of reason to play nice in the sandbox with each other. That's different than not only generational ago and, and 10 years ago, but even three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, I got to say, apropos of only some of this, Given the dire straits that Iran is in, right, you've got, I mean, uh, as much as you sort of want to be a sort of mildly bullish optimist realist on coronavirus, coronavirus has, by all accounts, been devastating in Iran, right? And they need their oil revenues to keep that regime afloat and to keep that gu- that country afloat. And so $30 a barrel oil is not great for them. I have never really understood why, you know, they had that drone attack on the Saudi installation and all that kind of stuff. Why, you know, Iran, if you want to create more scarcity for oil on global markets and you're Venezuela or Iran or one of these places, uh, finding proxies to do terrorist attacks on oil infrastructure seems like a no-brainer to me. But, But I think that you answered it. The reason why they don't do more of it is the response to from the last drone attack. Oil went from sixty, from fifty-seven to sixty-one, uh-huh. and it stayed there for maybe a week. But the, the drone attack wasn't particularly successful as an attack, though. Well, it took right? down fifty percent of Saudi capacity. I mean, that. It, it, oh, did it really? I didn't realize it, it was in that the seventies that, that would have utterly decimated world oil markets. Yeah, it was purely American shale that that caused oil markets to say, "Well, yeah, Saudi's down." That's huge, but then uh, American oil production went up double. Russian oil production went up too. Yeah. So um, I think that Iran, that's the play I would make if I were them, except for the fact that it doesn't really ultimately work. Right. And it's evil. Uh, it's sort of, What they ought to do is more a North Korea play. 
is kind of scratch at it and then get someone to pay attention to him to give him money. Yeah, yeah. And that's what North Korea's been doing for 60 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think they have much more leverage than North Korea does. And North Korea's still been able to use very little leverage to get a whole lot of money. Yeah. Just to kind of go away and leave everyone alone. But my fear with Iran is always is more ideological. I kind of think they're more serious. I do think, yeah. you know, the, uh, but yeah, Saudi, you have very um, conflicting and divergent interests right now. And so where Iran fits into this is very interesting too. Why do you think it is that their COVID response was so much uh, more severe, just simply the backwardation of their society? I don't know. I mean, I've been trying to figure that out in all my copious free time. But I mean, it is interesting that it, first of all, it seems to hit smokers hard, right? Because it's a part of the, that's one of the reasons why the fatalities in China were disproportionately male because men smoke at much higher rates than women do in China and these all these old smokers with bad lungs um, just got taken out and Iran is a big smoking society too so uh, that that's I have no idea if that's one percent of the explanation or ten percent or whatever but it's just something I think is interesting weaker, weaker immune system um, and it just sounds like they had no protocols in place for a long time and they let it get out of hand but I mean a lot of people in the senior leadership of the government and and Iran apparently are dying from it um which is going to spark all sorts of fascinating the Jews created COVID-19 conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff which you know we know is the stonecutters yeah I'll go check out Michelle Malkin's website and see what's <laughs> um see what's out there all right so uh um why don't we talk for a little bit about Elizabeth Warren and also in the context of, the, it seems to me that a lot of her ideas are, they're not as in, a lot of things that she wanted to do aren't as alive and well as they would have been if she were the nominee. But since she hasn't given her endorsement yet, and I think she's going to go with Biden eventually, um, once it's very clear that Biden's the <laughs> the presumptive front, you know, the presumptive nominee, um, curious if she tries to extract an outright VP pick on that, but um, she certainly is going to have pretty significant influence in the administration. What, which of her ideas do you think have the best legs to survive whoever gets the nominee, whoever gets, whoever the next president is, or whenever the next Democratic president is elected? Well, you know, I was thinking about the the leverage here and impact of markets that, because uh, I agree with you, I think she's highly likely to end up going with Biden. And uh, she's been kind of horse trading back and forth with both camps for the last week. But um, her leverage goes down significantly if Biden wins Michigan tonight. And and you get to a point where it looks like we're not even going to get a contested convention, let alone one where Biden prevails. You're just going to have Biden run away with this thing. If it goes there, Biden really doesn't need her to get that – to build up that progressive support. And there's no evidence that Warren's going to bring in the Bernie people that they're going to be worried about. The only person to bring in Bernie people is Bernie, and Bernie can't even fully do that. Right. I mean, he really can't. There are Bernie people that are not going to vote for Biden. Uh, I don't know that a bunch will vote for Trump. I know some will, and I think a lot will just kind of sit out or do the third-party thing. But um, Biden is going to be in trouble with – he is reasonably – he's not loved on Wall Street, but he's tolerated on Wall Street. And relative to Bernie, he's adored on Wall Street. Relative to Bernie, he's adored in, in my house. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know? But I'm saying um, to put Liz Warren, Treasury Secretary, with some of his hedge funders and Wall Street people that have backed him, raised money for him, stuck by him when he was dying on the vine, it's not going to go over well. Yeah. But So if he doesn't need her, 
it, that's all that's better for him. So I, I, I don't know if it really goes that direction. What's best for all of us, and I don't mean this vindictively about Warren, I mean this from a national interest, is if everyone's willing to just say, let's stay away. We don't really need you. you we mm-hmm. don't see you as a tremendous asset. Her third place showing Massachusetts, the kind of characterization now going on, uh, her stock is so far down from from when I wrote the book yeah. that um, I, I don't know. But her in a federal, a regulatory role, going back to that Consumer Financial Bureau that the Senate blocked her from getting, but that Obama had her, first of all, starting and then right. interim running before uh, finally McConnell wouldn't allow it to happen. Uh, that would be a terrifying place because there is and, – and Trump has played this in a good way. Um, Mnuchin, Cudlow, Gary Cohn, there's a lot of discretion in the executive branch of financial regulation. Uh, that discretion still exists when the other side's in charge, and a warning there is a very bad idea. There's a whole lot of people in Obama camp and especially the Bill Clinton-type camp that are pretty benign for financial markets. Mm-hmm. And not always for the right reasons. I'm I'm pretty hostile to neo-Keynesianism, but I do think that the Larry Summers of the world – are not critical of financialization. They're not critical of the role capital markets play in, in fueling global uh, rea- real economies. Yeah, I mean, Austin Goolsby. No, he's is, a very reasonable guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that Warren would have taken it a totally different direction. And, and uh, not just the rhetoric and not just the barking, uh, I mean, uh, substantively. Mm. And, and so that, that's something we have to kind of watch. I would add uh, Kamala Harris into the mix of People, I was just thrilled that their campaigns died, and yet now you got to worry about they're still out there and where they could kind of find a place. They could do a lot of damage, and uh, she she terrifies me. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're going to open the Pandora's box of um, Elizabeth Warren's sort of a policy toolkit, which one would you say is the most dangerous – with a with a reasonable possibility of of being put into reality. Well, uh, depending on what category we're looking at. So, from my vantage point as a uh, investment manager, the easy, lowest hanging fruit for her would be around uh, capital controls in American finance. Her ability to constrain what uh, banks are able to do relative to uh, funding American business. Uh, that's so. There's so much discretion in that. Um, she's not, by the way, a real monetary policy-minded person. She kind of loves to. She actually was really critical of Obama's selections to Fed governor. Uh, she's sort of anti-Fed, uh, no matter what, mm-hmm. like a Ron Paul was, but for just totally different reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, the de- the loosening of these capital requirements that has happened with Mnuchin. Um, her ability to reel that back in. And then secondarily is rhetoric, and it sounds generally to people like rhetoric isn't a big deal. It's just bark and not bite. But there really is a bite to it uh, when people feel disincentivized um, to transact. And and right now, it's more, there's more at risk than normal because they have levered up the corporate economy so much. You had basically $4 trillion come off the sidelines into debt markets. And if you were to see a real freezing up of liquidity, which which re- from a regulatory standpoint, Warren could affect, 
then I think that would be really detrimental to the economy. Um, so, like, you know, part of the part of the problem with where the Democrats have been going these days, by my lights, you know, I'm a conservative, um, is it seems like there are just these free-floating bits of rhetoric and ideas that um, are just being taken as sort of conventional wisdom to be smart, good things. And even if Warren is out, um, they're like, you know, they're just batons lying around that other people can pick up from AOC or whoever. Um, do you think we're ever going to actually get a wealth tax? I, I'm skeptical that we'll ever get one. Uh, and one of the reasons is I think the Supreme Court would will block it if it ever actually gets passed legislatively. There's a lot of walls in the way to get there. I mean, it is un- 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 totally unconstitutional. Unconstitutional, right. Overtly unconstitutional. However, I am convinced it'll be a policy platform for years to come. Yeah. And future people have the ability to turn knobs. First of all, they can be better salesmen or women. AOC will be a more effective salesperson for the wealth tax than either Bernie or Warren. Um, She's just younger and better looking and better, you know, more uh, articulate, right? But more than that, um, the, the things they want to fund require a funding mechanism. And the wealth tax is the only thing that scratches the two biggest itches they have, which is... Uh, envy on wealth inequality and a high social spending agenda. So they feel like they can kill two birds with one stone. Um, the way that they will end up funding these things is a VAT tax. And that is, that's just not, that's not something anyone wants to go talk about. So the wealth tax will stay out there as a public policy idea. Um, as long as people are mad at how much stock in Amazon Jeff Bezos owns, right? I mean, right. It, 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 that, that's where it, it, you can say, okay, well, they want, what is it, 50 trillion of spending things. Every politician's wanted to spend more than we can, Republican and Democrat, obviously. But what they're saying is now we can fund it and, and they can't come close to funding it. So that's my big complaint, right? Is it's just not true. Oh. You could confiscate the entire, all of the wealth. How the good top. was Charlie Cook's piece? No, that was great. Was, you know, yeah, I mean, they, they think, they just make up a number and and really, um, there's just not that many of those people. And I always say, let's start running the numbers at a hundred and twenty percent tax rate. We're taking all of your income and then some. Right. And let's just show the one point eight percent of that we're actually going to fund, uh, and figure out who's going to fund the other ninety eight percent of government in their world. But yeah, it isn't true. It just it doesn't matter. There there is such an incredible. Um, class warfare itch that it scratches that I think it's going to be far worse in the next 20 years. And it's the one thing I've never understood. And you've, you probably know as much about this as anyone I know. For, from liberal fascism, the Wilsonian success uh, uh, over the last 100 years of incremental progressivism and why they're all crying about maybe Bernie isn't going to get his shot when all they have to do is just sit back and wait 20 years, and these things are all going to end up happening uh, on the plan they're on, on the trajectory they're on. Now, there could be plenty of intervening effects, such as a revival of Hayekism that you and I might work on. But my point being, it, it seems like things are going in their direction. So why go get all revolutionary about it now? Yeah, so you're, I think, the, the as 
as the lady sheriff says in Fargo, I might question some of your police work there, officer. Um, I agree with you that uh, incrementalism is how we got here, and it is the best bet for these guys is the ratchet effect of just, mm -hmm. you know. Um, there's a great quote from Arthur Schlesinger where he says, there's nothing in inherently stopping us from achieving socialism through a series of new deals. And um, uh, the problem, I would argue, it's sort of like this gets to our mutual friend David French. His, he always likes to point out that for some bizarre reason, um, we have this incredibly intense culture war, but each side thinks it's losing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm much more of a believer in... Um, as I put it in liberal fascism, that 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 political religion is a m much be better explainer of psychology, and um, not to get back into our premillennialism versus postmillennialism stuff, but but you're pronouncing them both right, <laughs> so <laughs> the, um, huge progress. Um, is the uh, um, the revolutionary thing. Is the is it's the eminentizing the eschaton? That's right. It's right. It's it's the um, it's that religious transformational event. And if you tell people incrementally, it uh, it feels like free beer tomorrow. Well, I'm being disingenuous when I say I'm surprised why they do it. I completely understand why that uh, animates them, and it is core to their political religion. What I mean is tactically. I happen to know that they're achieving successes incrementally that don't require the revolutionary mm -hmm. um, moments that, that you're describing. But I agree that that is still kind of the guiding light of their political religion. The, the, it, the concern I have is as the culture war plays out, as all the other things that are happening in American society, the vast majority of which the ones I care about are non-political incrementally they're getting so many successes toward let's just say against free enterprise um that it, bernie losing doesn't make me say look the american people just stood up to socialism it's one of the strangest things i'm hearing by the way before biden had this sort of unbelievable lazarus moment um the number one question i was getting asked about the warren book is do you feel that warren her her failure in this campaign is proof that the American people have rejected socialism. At the time, Bernie was at like 80% yeah, in the yeah. polls. I said, I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that. Right. Even Biden. Yeah, I, I don't think that Warren represents socialism. I think she represents sort of classic technocratic elitism, statism. But it's it's less socialism to me. Do you mean ideologically or her brand? Her brand. Oh, her brand, you're right. Brand, and to a certain extent, ideologically, I mean, she's, I have a plan for that, right? There, yeah. there, there are two strains in American socialism. One is the redemptive, uh, you know, kumbaya, around the campfire, we're all in it together, the sort of political religion part of it, right? The, the sort of redemptive politics, um, it's much closer to populism. Um, and then there is the... Um, technocratic state planning version of socialism that goes to uh, Walter Lippmann and his stuff about drift versus mastery and the progressive notion of disinterest, right? Where uh, and pragmatism, where the we're just ruled by ex experts who can, um, through their own cognitive genius, um, 
outthink markets and plan people's lives accordingly. And there's a Venn diagram there, right? And like John Dewey represents both sides. Yeah. Um, but Bernie really represents to me the sort of old beer hall. Um, I don't mean that in a Nazi way. I just mean it like the old sort of union hall um, uh, socialist populist kind of tradition. And Warren represents the Thorstein Veblen, uh, uh, Walter Lippmann uh, strain where it's going to be ruled by experts. So would you see Bloomberg and Warren as distinct from one another only in his superior intelligence and ability to her? That he would be a better technocrat, but that ultimately they're still kind of going for the same technocratic progressivism? Look, she calls herself a capitalist, right? Yes. I mean, I think she does that in part because... She knows that the socialist label stings for her. But uh, I think both of them would be perfectly suited cognitively and emotionally and psychologically and philosophically to be the president of the EU. No question. We'll tolerate markets, right? We'll tolerate um, big players in the market space because they're easier to work with as a sort of a corporatist kind of structure. But Bernie would be one of the guys with the bullhorn outside the EU headquarters with the mob protesting austerity cuts. But where Warren, and not just in brand, but in ideology, becomes a bad Christine Lagarde or, oh. or EU bureaucrat is the breaking up Silicon Valley, the to, to hell with yeah. the banks. I mean, look, Deutsche Bank has been a zombie for years, and the EU continues to prop it up. And and it's probably true of the, the vast majority of the European banking system. Uh, they don't have much of a choice with this shared currency, but different fiscal realities. The failure of the European Union experiment, particularly the currency, is what it is. But my point is that Warren really is anti uh, those large quote-unquote capitalist institutions. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. No, you're making, a, you're making a good point. I, I You're right. There is a there is a difference, not just of degree, but of kind between her... But what I think Warren's doing is right. figuring this... I think she's sort of having her own kind of identity crisis over yeah. the last 15 years that's playing out in the public square where Bernie had it in his 20s yeah. and he's never looked back. Yeah. yeah. Um, much to his probably political chagrin now. I mean, he can't unwind the, the Fidel stuff and whatnot, but I think that's kind of who he is. The um, the there are a lot of misnomers on the right though about Warren that I got to see throughout the kind of media stuff I did with the book. The the idea about Warren is a flip flopper because like she used to be registered as a Republican or something. I really wish that were true. I generally think flip floppers are less dangerous. Because mm-hmm. first of all, I think most of them are flip. Just sure. the idea of politicians are liars doesn't scare me. I, I assume it. I, um, I, I maybe I sound cynical, but I think you probably agree with me. But it's when they sincerely move to the left yeah. that I think that's much more frightening. And Warren's transformation uh, around some of these things has been pretty concerning. Bloomberg, Bloomberg, though, uh, you know, obviously what what did him in was not a rejection of technocratic progressivism. That's the problem. Sure. It was a direct rejection of him. This is a corridor. I got to say, it's most people kind of love it. They think yeah. it sounds fantastic. It's just God. If only he didn't have those NDAs. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh, that it was really kind of him and his weakness on the debate stage and his voice it. and lots of yeah, that those types of, of things. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to try out a, a theory on you. Um, hold on one second. It's pretty early for that, Jonah. No, I know, but we got to you got to stay hydrated, and that reminds me, I got to talk to you guys about drink hydrant. As you can tell with my voice, it's particularly important to stay hydrated. 
um, not to mention staying hydrated in the in the age of Corona. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs sodium potassium magnesium and zinc to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day hydrant is backed by research the formula was developed by oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced efficient hydration hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply you can save even more with a monthly subscription there are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners the formula is vegan and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code DINGO for 25% off your first order. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com and promo code DINGO. Um, all right. So I want to float this thing by you. I've been writing for years about this. It's one of my sort of go-to columns every five years. You know, you don't want to repeat yourself too much, but every now and then circumstances require repeating yourself. Um, and you just wait for the right news peg. I think I'm a little better than Cal Thomas, who basically I think has like four columns, you know, um, someone said something bad about the Bible in a high school. Let me put a new lead on the same column I wrote, you know, six months ago. Anyway, uh, Cal Thomas is a very nice man. Um, where was I? Okay, so in classic political theory, um, I shouldn't say classic, in political theory, there's a, there's a popular argument, which I subscribe to, that explains where, if you're not going to get into whole natural rights philosophy and all this kind of stuff, right, uh, that explains where the emergence of liberal democracy comes from. It's not all explanatory, but it's a big part of it. And it basically says that you have to wait for the bourgeois to get rich enough, right, that they essentially displace the old aristocracy as the richest class in society, maybe not as individuals, but as a group. And um, they start, once they get a certain amount of, of wealth and, and security, they demand representation from their government and protection of their rights and, and liberties. And so you don't get, um, uh, you don't get stable democracies until you get a large enough middle class that the middle class is able to demand, um, uh, fair rules, rule of law, a political representation and all of the rest. And, and, um, and so in some ways rights are a lagging indicator of prosperity and um, once you hit this, and this is part of the argument that a lot of us make or made about China is that eventually if you get a big enough middle class, that middle class is going to demand accountability from the government that it's paying for and eventually it'll get it, right? And, and that story is a pretty well-documented one in lots of different countries. Anyway, there's one exception to this. It's some political development theorists or economic uh, development theorists, they call it the, sometimes they call it the oil curse or the resources curse. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's because in places like uh, Saudi Arabia, for one, when you have huge amounts of a natural resource, the state doesn't need to rely on the middle class to pay for the state. It has this natural resource that it can rely on. And so um, you get much less democracy or no democracy. You get much less rule of law. You get much less um, uh, political representation because the state can can turn the middle class into clients rather than masters, right? And very well documented problem um, that being rich from natural resources is the it, the only examples of prosperous countries that don't turn democratic, you know, by and large, um, is really these resource curse ones. I mean, China is the other counterexample, and it's still too soon to tell what's going to happen with China. Um, so the argument I've been making, to not belabor this, but is that one of the problems with our democracy, and this is a, the reason why it occurs to talk about it now is because it kind of ties into your last book, the Crisis of Responsibility book. So much of the rhetoric you get from Warren, you get from Democrats in general, is that the billionaire class, as Bernie likes to put it, is essentially like oil. It is this bottomless resource that we can just pull, you know, we can stick a... Uh, well into the top of Jeff Bezos's forehead and suck out money in perpetuity and that the billionaires will pay for everything. The middle class doesn't need to pay for anything. They already paid too much. That was part of Elizabeth Warren's whole spiel. She wasn't going to tax the middle class. And uh, as much as we may not like a VAT, um, the, the simple fact is you cannot pay for anything new or significant in this country without taxing our middle class because that's where all the money really is. Well, it's where all the people are, right? It's so therefore the money because they're just the law of numbers. Yeah, of course, right. And yeah. um, But so there's, a, there's, there's an inherent threat to democracy itself yeah. when you make it sound as if these people who can afford, you know, in the way Elizabeth Warren would talk about billionaires, there's like a couple pennies on every dollar they have above $50 million can pay for all your schools, all your health care, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, at times, she kind of sounds like this is a great line from Homer Simpson where he says, when he's running for uh, sanitation commissioner, he says, people, dogs are crapping in our houses and we're the ones who have to pick it up. Yeah. Do we lose a war or something? Right. I mean, and, um, anyway, so what do you think about all that? Well, um, the, in terms of the uh, political theory, um, I will add, and then I want to get specifically to where we are in the in the Warren mentality. Uh, it is the juxtaposition of political liberty that people have achieved wealth demand with societies that demand religious liberty. So this would be the Anglo experience, in Britain and America. I'm very much bought into Walter Russell Mead's theories here, that where these societies have most well-functioned, it is not merely the sequence of first A, then B, achievement of wealth, and then political freedom to protect it. But there is this sort of um, trifecta that involves God and gold that is made for the most flourishing of societies. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese, uh, the notion that, look, political freedom did not follow economic freedom has always been flawed the Friedmans, Thomas Friedmans of the world. God, I wish he had a different last name. I know. It's so unfair to Milton. 
um, has always been flawed by the way they define economic freedom first, but also the concept of what really political freedom actually will mean. And I think when you divorce it from a religious liberty, you, we're, we're having different conversations. Mm-hmm. But in, in the sense, to your point about the notion that these sort of autocratic countries that have natural resource, Saudi with oil is a great example, but Venezuela at given points in time, um, Australia is not the autocratic company, but they've relied on exporting natural resources for their economic uh, prosperity as well, and that our billionaire class sort of dilutes um, the reality, and yet they're wrong because there isn't this bottomless pit of oil out of our billionaire class. I would agree all the way through. The 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 part that I'm concerned about in the era of Trump and in the era of right-wing populism is that I don't think the logic of that argument is um, the exclusive property of Warren and Sanders. Mm-hmm. I think it is being shared by Tucker Mm-hmm. And, and others in the sort of right-wing populism too. And they reframe the arguments a little bit, but less and less they're not even really reframing. I mean, there were moments in Warren's campaign that I swear I thought Tucker was going to endorse her. Yeah, Not just like as I would do if she's like, oh, she's right on this one issue. Like they have things they're right about. I think you and I hate crony capitalism. Sure. And every now and then they'll, they'll hit something right there. But I'm saying like all the way through, that the left and right-wing populism is so dangerous to the kind of concept you're describing that, yeah, maybe the left is the one's getting the math wrong of how it'll play out. But I think that the right populists are getting the culture art wrong in stating that the middle class really – this goes back to that crisis of responsibility book. The idea that we live in a country where our middle class has truly just been so victimized. Right by that uh, kind of hoarding of the billionaire class and manipulating of the system and whatnot. Um, I, I, you have so many podcast guests that have gone through this, and this is, I think, the theme that really animates you and myself and David French, but you have all of Vin's work, Kim Carney's work. At the end of the day, what will make or break the present moment in American society will not end up being the progressive, non-progressive debate and the free enterprise, uh, non-free enterprise debate. It will be that social fabric and mm-hmm. that ability to uh, restore those mediating institutions. And and I have absolutely no idea how that's going to go right now. All I know is a lot of people that I thought the last 20, 30 years were on our side in the culture war, I don't I don't think they are right now. You no, know, I, 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 it, it has been, if I can detach myself from some of the fights it's engendered, fascinating to watch how I used to think that the right, for the most part, you had the sort of fever swamp people that you could mostly ignore, and then the vast bulk of the right, I thought, had become fairly homogenized, and then it turns out that, like... um it took Trump to for all of a sudden everybody to, you know, it's like they took ancestry DNA and they discovered, oh, well, I'm part of this tribe, so that's the flag I'm going to wear now. And the 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 retribalization of the American right is kind of amazing to me. And 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 maybe you're in the same boat because I don't think we've talked about this specific thing. I think we both were going through the shock and awe of it in the in the Trump era a couple years ago, and and right now we're obviously still in the Trump era. But for me right now, I'm I'm not just sitting here going, oh, wow, I can't believe how much Trump's changed the Republican Party or Trump's changed conservatism. I'm past that. I'm, I'm now sort of saying, okay, 
uh, apart from Trump, the persona and the personality, the, the, all the you know reality TV nature of him, I really do believe that what animates so many on the right is I don't think they identify as populist. I think that Ben Shapiro says a lot. What is it? Um, Anti-American, uh, anti-anti-Americanism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not even sure it's anti-anti-Americanism because I'm not sure we've really well defined what Americanism is. Yeah. It, it is. It, it just seems to me the enemy of my enemy. Like there's just this kind of anti-mediaism and most of it is so well-deserved, it makes it impossible to put yourself in the middle of this argument. But that kind of uh, proactive and constructive um, presentation of a belief system around conservatism that the Buckley's and Kirk's and, and our forefathers uh, re- represented is so lacking that I'm now thoroughly convinced. I, Rich Lowry's talk about like, can Trumpism survive without Trump? And I would say, no, it's this guy, this moment, he, his uh, gravitas. I kind of am starting to believe it will, but not as Trumpism, just as so, you call it Tuckerism. Mm-hmm. But there's that kind of right-wing populism that is just so divorced from what we would have considered conservatism. And yet politically, it's not fusionist in the way the old libertarian and, and uh, you know, let's say anti-communism fusionism needed to exist. It's fusionist in the sense that we are obviously never going to win another election if we don't have them on our side. Yeah. And yet I don't really know how much they're on our side. I, I think it's different by degree, but a large degree, to the social issues of the 80s. I think a lot of people said, we don't really like pro-lifers, or maybe pro-lifers said, we don't really like these other guys. But there was there was so much more natural overlap mm. in the Reagan three-legged stool. Uh, right now, I think that is, there's very, very little overlap, other than a usual shared uh, antipathy for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I... So, I mean, I've, I've been grappling a lot with the negative polarization stuff. Um, and, you know, my, my my standard take on this is that, you know, negative polarization just says that there are millions of people who vote Republican because they hate Democrats, right? And there are millions of Democrats who vote Democrat because they hate Republicans. It's purely drinking liberals' tears stuff and little more. Um, <clears throat> and I think that explains a significant not all of it, but a significant portion of Trump supporters is they just love him for his enemies and how he makes his enemies upset. And um, that said, you know, the transformation of the parties is moving very rapidly in that um, the um, Democratic Party is becoming more ideological and the Republican Party is becoming more coalitional when it was the reverse for most of our lives. And the the fleeing, I mean, the mass migration of moderate, formerly Republican suburbanites into the Democratic Party. I mean, that's that's what saved Biden is black voters who are becoming much more pragmatic and conservative vis-a-vis the sort of barista socialist left, yep. you know, the AOC left. Um, the and the so the the, the and s- senior white voters. Yeah. So the suburbanite, but the suburbanites, which used to be sort of the in many ways, if not the base of the Republican Party, then certainly the majority makers for the Republican Party were, you know, married, two-income, college-educated couples trying to figure out how to pay for college for their own kids, right? And um, they've moved Democrat. At the same time, Trump has hastened the migration of non-college-educated, blue-collar whites into the Republican Party. 
And so the Republican Party is taking the last bits of the old FDR coalition, and the Democratic Party is taking the best bits of the old Republican coalition. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, people... I never give a speech where someone doesn't ask me about, can we get a third party? Yeah. And my standard answer is no, because the way our, in a presidential system versus a parliamentary system is very hard. Um, and the way you get a third party is that a third party emerges, kills one of the other parties, and then becomes the other second party. Um, Which we could get that. We could definitely get that. Or you could just simply say, see the coalitions making up the two parties... Um, change so dramatically that they just become different parties than what we grew up with. Right. And you could certainly see one party dying from a third party thing. If, but if one party dies, the other party loses a significant part of its reason to live. Yeah. So I just think, I don't know how, but in the next 10 years, what it means to call yourself a Republican or a Democrat, if those are still the two parties around, could be just very different than what we what we conceive of. But when you when you refer to like even the name of the podcast being a remnant, uh -huh. that's descriptive. It isn't prescript. You don't want that. <laughs> it, it sort of happened to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although you should you should go back and listen to how David French talks about the remnant. Right? There's a whole there's a rich biblical thing oh, there, sure. right? And which is where. Albert Jane even got all that from me, but yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, but but there's the the whole point of the remnant isn't just that it's something that's been reduced; it's also the the seed stock for for replanting and rebuilding. Well, so right? you are a post millennialist. <laughs> this no, is exactly but... this is actually the whole theological foundation of of the post millennial eschatology, and even apart from eschatology, it is very uh, root, any eschatology at some level would hold to that belief theologically. So when you uh, politically I agree it's the it's the stock from which something goes further. I guess my question is when with your comments on where parties are going. Yeah. What would be your hope for the remnant? Not necessarily your plan because we're all having to respond to things right now, but if there was some sort of hope as to how it could play out uh, what would that be in the 10 years ahead since we don't desire to be a political minority or remnant forever? Well, so it's funny. I haven't fleshed all this out too much, but but Steve and... Does the second term for Trump change it? I think it does. I think it makes a big difference. Well, I think the second term for Trump... Anyone who thinks that the first term... That the second term is going to be a replay of the first term, I think, oh. is making a wild mistake. Um, and, and and even a lot of Trump's advocates say so. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it would be Trump uncaged in a way that we have not yet seen. Behaviorally. Yeah. But, well, that's, yeah, I agree. Um, but I'm even thinking some of the defenses, and they've been totally right. You guys were so worried he was a closet liberal. Look at Gorsuch. Look sure. at Kavanaugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at tax cuts. And and one of the things that guys like us have said over and over is most of the good things he's done are conventional Republican kind right. of things. And thank you, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Right. And we're largely forced upon him. Yeah. And he took credit for it, but that's fine. And and and, and he allowed it. And he yeah, could have stopped sure, it. And sure. so I don't. I, I give him the credit. But I'm I'm wondering in a second term, do we go full blown, back to the 2015 concerns? Do you maybe get a liberal judge or so? Uh, do you may I I don't think that we would. I think at this point he's grateful enough to that conservative base. I don't think he would do it, not not for any philosophical or judicial or, or ideological reasons. But I just think pragmatically he probably wouldn't ha you know hack his base. But what would happen? What if he go went and put a moderate judge on? See, I I I think that's really unlikely. I think what's more and what I hear from people who are 
deep in the legal community stuff and have close ties to the administration and all that, is it's not so much that he would pick a liberal judge, it's that he would pick a Trumpist judge and pick people. People are sincerely talking about like Jay Sekulow or Pam Bondi. You know, he would pick his Harriet Myers, and the question would be: Would the would the the high priest and conservatism who rallied against Harriet Myers, would they rally against the Trumpist judge? And I don't know that they yeah, would. Yeah, but see, Madison and Hamilton are our friends here. The Senate, he's done a couple of these things. I don't want to say any names or whatever. He's done some of this with some Fed stuff. Yeah. And they stopped it. Yeah. yeah no, I agree. I agree. I think that, uh, I think that the, uh, it'll be interesting a second term, uh, especially you get some economic slowness. The deficits are unforgivable now. With peace and prosperity, you get some slowdown. Those deficits are going to be two trillion. Yeah, and I, and I just am curious when we get the right to either say we break from Trumpism or we now just love deficits and we want MMT or something like that. Well, so going back to your question from before, um, one of the things that has sort of been fascinating about this moment, and I'll just give a peek behind the curtain, is you know when we found out the dispatch, one of the things we knew was that we were going to get a lot of like. Uh, uh, you know, you know, praise and adulation from people who want to use us as a cudgel against Trump, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> because and I've been talking about this for years, written about it a bunch of times. The the mainstream media and the left they love to lionize whichever faction of conservatism is out of power, and so. Uh, in the late 90s, the New York Times and the New Republic loved, loved the neocons, particularly the foreign policy neocons, because they supported Clinton yeah. on uh, Yugoslavia and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then under Bush, when the quote-unquote neocons allegedly took over the government, yeah. uh, all of a sudden, Rand Paul was the most interesting man in politics, according to the New York Times. And then when it looked like that part of conservatism was ascendant, they all of a sudden discovered, well, he's, uh, you know, got a lot of weird baggage. And, and Ron Paul, hey, turns out is really from a really crappy, swampy part of libertarianism. <clears throat> and so, but there's this weird moment right now where being a classical liberal, even one of David French's stripe, which is profoundly a matter of faith and religion and and, and and cultural conservatism, but being a classical liberal who doesn't bend the knee to Trump makes you a centrist now. Yeah. And the best thing I can think of for American politics is if the remnant, bro as broadly understood as possible, which would include sort of people of the center left who are like neoliberal about economics and a lot of people on the right all the way, you know, as far as you can go, but have this still commitment to sort of the classical liberal understanding about the role of government and the role of constitution and all that kind of stuff. If they can become the new swing voters, yeah. that would be fantastic for the country because then everybody has to pander to us and flip flop to us. I don't necessarily think that's happening overnight or even that it's going to happen. But if, if I were in this to build a political movement, that would be the, the goal. And demographically, not, it would have to be us Gen Xers. Yes, the because, best because it, it and so there isn't an impossibility of that happening. It just certainly isn't happening yet, right? Mm -hmm. But um, to the extent that there are thoughtful Gen Xers that have some sort of staying power generationally, and will, uh, they're uh, are more thoughtful and and a bit more um, dissatisfied with the present tribalism, 
uh, and are likely to default to some sort of philosophical worldview. Classical liberalism would be a, a good one to default to, and, and I could see it becoming a little miniature coalition that on the margin has a lot of power. I could see that because I want to see it. Sure. Right no, that's, now, that's my problem, too. Right now, it's hard to because it, it is such the opposite. In, and I do, actually don't believe it's as uh, true as they – like this whole idea about you guys are just so irrelevant. Like it's one thing I've had to constantly – remind friends of mine that your enemies telling you how irrelevant you are does not make you irrelevant. And people can say it over and over, especially the Twitter mm. mobs and so forth. And I, I suppose maybe you don't want me to, and I wouldn't, but there's names of people we could say that are constantly talking about how irrelevant National Review is or irrelevant mm. Joan is or something. And I, and I, and I always, and I always think, um, that if we could get away with that just by like saying, oh, Obama is so irrelevant, right. you know, just I don't like him. I don't agree with him. It's a But the truth is that even the choice of the word remnant, we certainly acknowledge that right now we, we come from a position of being a minority. Sure. But it's not one that necessarily has to stay a minority forever. And that's where I've tried to not go out of my way to make enemies of those that I fully expect are coming right back in the, whenever sure. that age of Trump goes away, the do know better. And, and I thought about this. With, um, I'm really big fan still of Senator Sass. And I know he's been on your podcast a few times and, and, and you guys have a relationship. And he, he came out to California. I spent a lot of time with him. I, I had him at the high school that I started out there. And, and you know what has occurred to me with his sort of friendliness uh, with, with Trump as of late? I'm not sure I would do anything different than what he's doing mm -hmm. because I don't see the point of getting pers purposely marginalized with no real hill to stand on, no real principle behind it, just for the sake of saying, like, I, I now have no r real relevance, meaning politically. Sure. But do I expect that Sass will be the same classical liberal conservative stalwart he's ever been at whatever point that this moment is over? I very much do. Yeah. So I think it behooves us to maintain some that that degree of alliance. Your point, coalition building is going to be necessary. But I'm just it's something we I'm sure we'll talk about more offline in the in the years ahead. How the remnant maintains the political relevance necessary to win elections, and maybe your point is it will just have to be done marginally. But my feeling is that Buckley Buckley was looking for another remnant to come in and get hit conservatism over the top. He wasn't looking for conservatism to come in and get another coalition over the top. Yeah, I mean, I, so I'll just be honest. I my mental state right now is that I am so critical of how much journalism has become party work by proxy um, that. I am not interested in me personally building a political movement and looking for votes, right? I'm very much interested in people who are interested in that, you know, I mean, like, yeah. but it's it's not my lane. I don't want it to be my lane. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I've been saying for a while now that my job is simply to tell the truth as I see it. And so even the Buckley role where he actually was a coalition builder that his coalition got involved in electoral politics a lot. I don't, I mean, I, I, I want to praise the politicians that are doing right as I see it and criticize the ones who are doing wrong. But um, at this moment, I think the best service I can do, that the dispatch can do, and that conservatives at places like National Review and other places I respect and admire and consider friends 
um, is stick to the principles, tell the truth as you see it, um, and put in the bank the integrity and 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 reputational uh, seriousness that comes with doing that um, for the future. There's going to be a Democratic president either in 2020 or in 2024. And I, the one piece of advice I constantly give my friends is, you know, what, what will you be able to say about the next Democratic president that you will not be a hypocrite for saying? Yeah. That simple heuristic goes a long way in saying, okay, where am I going to come down on this? And there are people who, have, who, are, who are buying on credit their popularity with the right and with the public by defending Trump no matter what he does that um, they're not going to be able to pay back their spent credibility when it, when they start going after, you know. I mean, it's like these people who are going after Biden for being, um, you know, uh, sort of m- mentally compromised, right? I think Biden probably is mentally compromised. He's definitely lost a step. But if you've never said that about Donald Trump, yeah. I can't take you that seriously, yeah. you know. And because I think that Donald Trump is mentally compromised, too. But do you think that uh, our, our friend Jim Garrity makes a point that character, uh, apparently, we, we put a big premium on it in the Clinton era. And then now we've sort of decided, based on the way the left treated Mitt Romney, that character was overrated. Um, do you think that uh, consistency is just an overrated element in the pre- now internally and for our own character, our own testimony, our own, I don't know, raising kids? I'm with you a thousand percent, but I'm saying in terms of the present struggle, uh, I do the exact same thing you do. I say it constantly. And by the way, I really do try to live it. Like Mm -hmm. I do not criticize Trump for things I wouldn't criticize Obama for. And I don't uh, uh, defend him for things I wouldn't note in others as well. However, when you point out that heuristic, I'm just wondering if it's falling on deaf ears because of the moment we're in. Yeah, but I again, it's sort of you can't be responsible. That's not my. No, I, I have to stay in my lane. And um, but is that a division of labor comment or is that a overall macro strategy comment? I have no strategy. Uh, you know, there's that great line from Solzhenitsyn where he says, I, mean, "I have a strategy about how to build a dispatch and do it honorably yeah. and right." And you know, and Steve and I have a pretty serious vision about that, but. Um, in terms of, for me, I've lost an enormous number of fans, an enormous number of fans. I mean, I, every day I get somewhere between two and 20 emails from people saying, I used to really like you. I used to buy your books. I hate you now, blah, 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 blah. And, I get more than that about you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that's just the way it is. Um, so I have no like pl- grand political strategy. Um, I think, you know, I'm not a faithful Christian like you are. But I think my job is to essentially bear witness, you know, as I see fit, you know, and, and make you know, a living. It would be a lot easier to bear witness, faithful witness if you become a faithful Christian. I understand that. Just, um, no, but, uh, but all proselytizing notwithstanding, I'm with you. That is my objective, too. But that, but that's interesting, your self-awareness of how it's divorced from some sort of macro strategy. It just is what it is, and, and we let it play out. I, I think I think— so it's interesting. Earlier, we were, you were talking about how I left out of the equation the rise of the middle class with the religious rights, mm-hmm. you know, and religious liberty. And I agree with you about that, right? But this is a point I make in Suicide of the West is that, you know, the the Max Weber 
Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism theory about where capitalism comes from. Deeply flawed, bunch of reasons. But um, even if you take it at face value, right, the the argument says that um, this theological transformation where people um, lived a proper life on this idea that it was a sign that you might be going to heaven, right? And so you embrace things like honesty, hard work, thrift. And it turns out that if you embrace those things, um, you prosper. And uh, the reason why, you know, I mean, the reason why I, I'm bringing that up is that it's sort of, as a theory of where capitalism comes from, it still shows that capitalism was kind of an accident, right? Because no one was saying you'll do this and you'll get rich. It was you do this and it's more likely that you're going to be going to heaven. And it just turns out that capitalism and prosperity was an accidental byproduct of it. My view is I should behave, I should be modeling the behavior that I think is so lacking on the right these days. And I'm not great at it. And I've got a lot of this. You can certainly look at the stuff for me in the past and point to and say I'm being a hypocrite for it. But the great thing about hypocrisy is that you're trying to move back. You know, at least my hypocrisy is I am trying to actually live up to my ideals rather than live down to the expectations of other people. Well, first of all, let me defend you against your own accusation against yourself, because I've heard you say this a lot lately, about critical of some of your old writing uh-huh. and that you felt it was too, the liberal tier thing uh-huh. or nut picking. I think that I don't think it's fair to criticize yourself for something that in the context of today you wouldn't do, but wasn't the context of the day then. In other words, no, I, I'm with you. I, I think that's fair, and I appreciate it. But 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 I but but I will say this first of all, because um, I can't let it be on record that I agree with you that the uh, origins of American free enterprise we began with the belief from Puritans in a sort of prosperity theology that, or that it was earning heaven. I believe that the American Protestant aspiration for gold as a, as a symbol of, of human flourishing was in response to the demand for obedience. So they actually believed that God asked them to live productive lives, and it did. It just did generate this uh-huh. this better society. So there's chicken or egg stuff going on there, and I know your point, but I'm taking a a position on the chicken versus the egg. Here. Sure. Okay. But but either way, where where your point being that sometimes you just do the right thing and trust those results will come. That's exactly where I'm at too. It's hard. Maybe I'm still stuck with it, and you already worked through it. It's hard for political junkies, not pundits, but just junkies, just people that are used to kind of believing. See, I bought into Andrew Breitbart's whole thing about uh, politics following culture way before I ever heard him say it. Sure. But now it was a, it was I'm- was a Pat Moynihan line for I think, like, I think, 20 yeah, years and, earlier. And, and probably some version of it had been said by people yeah. many years before that. But I think that we're in a kind of negative feedback loop where- um, the the politics is impacting the culture as well. And, and I, I guess agree. if I'm going to say one thing that Amari, I kind of would agree with, he's right that there is this negative feedback loop that takes place, even in the judicial side. Certain certain legal renderings out of the courts end up having a cultural impact. It isn't just the culture creates the courts, the courts impact the culture. And so I don't want to go forward with our, our faithful presence, faithful witness, whatever you called it, and all the things you're doing at Dispatch, all the things I'm trying to do in, in my life and career, totally divorced from political ramifications. But I'm very comfortable saying the politics will just follow what what it is. Maybe the best thing to do is just have the humility to say we can't really control it anyways. I just yeah. see some people that seem to be 
going out of their way to make sure they never have any impact again on the political side. No, no, look, I agree. Look, so the, the political side, when you say the political side, I think Republican Party. I care more about the conservative movement than I do care about the Republican Party you know. because I think without a healthy conservative movement, there's no point to caring about the Republican Party. Um, and I look, there are fights that I, I do not pick because I've got enough enemies already, right? So there is some politics on my side where I'm just, I let some things go. I don't respond to some things. I don't express all of my full opinions about some writers and some pundits that we know um, just because there's only so much time in the day and there are only so many fights you can have. And Sometimes people are friends, and I never understood the argument that you're supposed to go after your friends publicly out of principle. Like Sometimes it's okay to, you know, you can't go after everybody. And- right. You have respect for relationships. You should always tell the truth, but you don't have to tell every truth that is in your head, right? And so that sort of gets me to the, I was going to bring up the Solzhenitsyn line, right? Which I think is grandiose and um, and it can sound pretentious coming from me, but it plays in my head all the time and has for three years now. He said, you can resolve to live your life, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me. That, to me, as pompous as that might sound, is sort of my watchword these days, is that I'm just not going to go around and pander to people who are following politics as if it's a form of entertainment just to make a buck off of it. And... um, and it's a weird irony for me because a lot of my writing is about entertaining the reader. Um, so I understand that there's a tension there. But I, I, I think, you know, we, before you said, you know, about the remnants being a minority, I've been conservative all my life. I've always been in the minority, right? And I like being in the minority. That's one of the reasons I'm a happy warrior is I like being outnumbered. Um, and uh, and so I just, I, I'm... You know, I keep saying I'm politically homeless, but I'm sort of, I'm more ideologically grounded now because I actually know what I well, and this, and this may be a lot of the reason why you and guys like you and and David French and 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 myself have a have a common ground is I see other people that are kind of Trump skeptic or or Trump phobic that they're not just saying what you just said. They almost want the homelessness. You're saying, I'm willing to just let the chips fall where they may. Right. Tell the truth and not let it happen on my watch, but I'm not going to. It does seem to me that there's others in the movement that um, are, are poking the bear uh, in a different way, where I think that sort of peace and contentment from uh, just saying, I'm going to tell the truth, live out my mission, vision, whatever the lane may be. And, and it's true that the journalistic lane you're taking with dispatch, that's different than a political activist. Sure. I mean, it ought to be very right. different. Um, but I want I worry about where all the good guys will be, I meaning those that are somewhat philosophically uh, rooted and that are talented, that are articulate. You know, there has to be this kind of pool of people on the other side of all this, um, I want as many of us still standing as possible. Not, yeah, no, that's fair. And, and some I, I worry won't be. I think that's entirely fair. But um, we've gone very long now, um, so we uh, we got to wrap. What was it up. the longest one we ever you ever did? Uh, you had one with. Uh... I did one with Russ Roberts that we took put made into a two parter. But this and this may be that. But I got Ross Douthat coming in soon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And. Uh, 
you know, main he, event. This is a long opening act, and I'm probably going to have to pump him with coffee because he's going to come in drunk. Um, so, uh, David, it's always a pleasure to have you on. You have Thanks a standing standing invitation to come back, um, and uh, um, and I'll get my stock tips off the air. Yes, deal. <laughs>